Hello, dearest of the dear patrons. This is Alex Ohili. It's Thursday, the 23rd of September. I'm here with George Hoare. Hello, George. Hello, Alex. And Philip. And dearest, and dearest of dear patrons as well. Hello. Philip, hello. Hi, how are you? Good. Good, thanks. Uh, this is a reading club, uh, and this one is one that Phil has sort of arranged. So I'll pass over to him for him to tell us what we're discussing. Yeah, thank you. So we are discussing the title of this paper is Intersectionalism, the Highest Stage of Western Stalinism. It's by Mike McNair, who is a Oxford legal academic, and it's published or was published in Critique, the Journal of Socialist Theory um, back in 2018. And you'll find the um, you can find it in the show notes. Um, Critique is a kind of venerable journal run by um, the Venerable Hillel Tikhtin, who is um, Emeritus Professor of um, Marxism, I think, um, in Glasgow University, so retired now. And one of the um, one of the most influential um, Marxist academics, I suppose, in the UK over the last 30 years. Anyway, so much for uh, the journal. We're here to talk about the paper. So uh, Mike McNair himself is a, uh, as I mentioned, he's a legal scholar at Oxford. He's also the guru or leading intellectual light and I think also political leader of this kind of cranky Stalinoid sect that's associated with the Weekly Worker publication, for those of you who are familiar with the British um, radical left. And the reason that I was curious about this um, paper in particular is because it seemed to me very in the just on the basis of the title, it seemed to me very interesting and appealing. The idea that the authoritarianism of the contemporary left, particularly as embodied in intersectionalism, that it could be um, historically rooted and historically grounded. Um, and that bringing these roots to light would be informative and politically useful. And so that's what we, um, that's what we hope to draw out um, in our discussion today. So the core of um, the core of the argument, and we'll get into it in more detail, but the core of the argument is essentially that it, the embrace of intersectionalism by the Western left at the moment is self-defeating because it undermines far from, even though it uh, kind of rejects class in favor of race, gender, sexuality, and so on, it ends up um, failing to meaningfully emancipate the oppressed communities which it claims to stand for. And on page 543 of the paper, Mike McNair says it is the highest stage of Western Stalinism, of Stalinism, sorry, in this specific sense, which is that a policy that was adopted to impose uniformity and to crush dissent internal to the left in the 1930s has become generalized on the left. And that now it's not simply internal to the party and the alliances associated with the Communist Party, but that it has become general across the left and in that sense is the highest stage. And he also incorporates an element um, discussing how some of these ideas developed through um, what he calls soft Maoism in the 60s, and particularly the idea of the authenticity of um, suffering and how the authentic voice, the idea of speaking truth, that authenticity can only come from a, that it has to be understood from the viewpoint of um, subjective personal experience. So that's the um, introduction. I would say a few words by way of kind of uh, discussing what I made of it, and then I'll hand over to Alex and George and see what they think. It has to be said. I mean, the tone, the tone of the piece grates. 
um it feels you know it has that kind of spectrumy oxford marxist um style in which it's written it might that style might be familiar to some of the listeners of this pod um but i'll leave the, for that to them to judge We're the makers of this pod <laughs> and I mean, it combines this kind well whatever whatever <laughs> it combines this kind of tedious sectarianism with academic gatekeeping in which everyone is kind of labeled and identified not so much by what they argue or the content of their ideas, but by what political group they go to or they belong to. And so it's this mix of sharp analysis as well as, you know, indulging in some of the intersect favored intersectionalist tactics themselves of smearing by association. Um, and then there's this odd kind of melange of erudition which combines, you know, legal theory, criticizing um, Kimberly Crenshaw, the, or the um, originator of intersectionalism, alongside, um, you know, fairly, fairly detailed communist history of official communist parties and organizations combined with obscure sci-fi references. Um, so again, a kind of a very odd mix. Anyway, um, before we talk about what we thought were good points and um, weak points, uh, what did you guys make of it in general terms? Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was like it, it, it made one point, which I've made before. I think we've all made it in some ways. But the idea that basically the proliferation of identity claims and, and identity politics brings forth a white and or male identity politics of its own. Um, that, that's a point that we've made. And it's good that this kind of made it and, and worked through that argument, demonstrating historically how it came about. So I, I was like, that was just my first impression was like, ah, okay, great. Something that kind of teases out the, the history behind what seems to be a, an obvious point. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the question of like, why did this idea of intersectionality, which is, <clears throat> I guess, quite an, quite an obscure one theoretically, or, or quite a complex one. How did this come to have such a um, a universal acceptance and a, and like wide currency. And I think there's, there is quite a provocative thesis that it's essentially, it comes from the history of, of, uh, Stalinism. Um, but I don't, um, do I do? Yeah. I can't quite put my finger on what I think is missing, but I, I think, I think I kind of reject the, the fundamental claim, although I do think it's a really good piece and it was a good suggestion. The idea that this is self-undermining, I don't think that's true. Yeah, I think I it. I think it in fact yeah. represents mm. the class interests of the people who are doing this, and it's a yeah. very good strategy for them. But having said that, uh, yeah, it was it was yeah, I, I enjoyed reading it. So it was it was good to read a paper as well. Although you said like pay, on page five hundred and forty-three. And listeners might think, oh, shit, that's like 540 pages. But no, it's in a journal. So it starts at page 540. I think this is the pedantic Oxford thing that Phil was referring yes. to in his, in his introduction. <laughs> yes, because I said in the introduction, George, that it's an academic journal. So I think it's clear that the article is taken from a scholarly periodical. So, yes. Yeah, but you could have given a bit more detail. You could have said it was volume 46, number four pages 541 uh, to 558 http colon let, let me stop you there let me stop you there. have you so do you actually know the weekly worker maybe you know mike mcnair from your days in oxford i i i haven't no i haven't um haven't met haven't it sounds met mike. like you'd make a great fit with the um with this group but anyway that's just a thought um i wanted before we talk i 
before we kind of talk about the substantive argument itself and how far we think it works, I thought it might be useful just to draw out some good points, um, which is to say some um, some of the points that are made on route, um, which are insightful or useful. So I'll mention a few of them. Um, one of them I thought was, which was really interesting, was when he talks about some of the origins of modern intersectionalism in the 70s, black radical feminism, was their complete ignorance of 19th century debates. Um, the significance being that they end up rehashing some of the most basic debates in 19th century Marxism, notably economism. So um, he gives, he quotes some of them complaining about the, you know, they don't, they're, uh, they qualify socialism or they're uh, reluctant to describe themselves as socialists in the 70s um, because they felt that this was purely about economic improvement, material improvement, um, without regard to political questions of um, of race or women's emancipation and so on. And that is, you know, that is the basic, one of the most basic arguments that's had in late 19th century Russia um, is the debate on economism, that uh, the politics of socialism has to be more than just material improvement. So the ignorance of those debates and the way they end up reproducing these debates, but without leading to the political conclusions that Marxists did in the previous century, I thought that was interesting. Um, the other thing which I think was fascinating was just how tightly intertwined um, all of this was with the New Deal. So when he traces some of the um, original calculations made by American communists in the 1930s and how intersectionalism emerges in that period, and we'll talk a bit more, we'll talk a bit more about those, the specific claims he makes, but just how tightly intertwined it is with the structure of the New Deal and the corporate state that emerges in the wake of the New Deal. So all the different identity groups that are going to be, um, all the different kind of, uh, yeah, the groups that are going to be kind of... Um, uh, cultivated by the state and um, uh, provided with uh, state support in the context of the Great Depression that emerges intersectionalism or proto-intersectionalism, if you want to call it that, in the 1930s and 40s, emerges in the restructuring of the American state in the wake of the New Deal. And I thought that was genuinely fascinating because it tells us something important about the communitarian identitarian politics of intersectionalism. Anyway, I, I, had, um, I had a bit of a like a, a, a duh moment reading this, which was like he's going through the history, right, and and through these waves. What are, of, sorry, what's a what's a what's a duh moment? Are, well, I'm, I'm, like, I'm coming that's to really obvious. I'm or? coming to explain. Well, no, in a, in a kind of oh, that was a stupid thought, Alex. Why did you have that stupid thought? I'm going to explain what my stupid thought was um, because okay. I think it's maybe telling. But like that in reading through the this history, which effectively recounts. In some sense, it sort of left a generation um, through Stalinism, 1930 Stalinism, and then the 1960s New Left, and especially through what McNair calls a certain soft Maoism. Uh, that I was like, well, this is all very, uh, very much a U.S. history. You know, this is about U.S. Stalinism and the U.S. New Left. And then I was like, catching myself, like, yes, of course, because this is about identity politics, something that we used to treat as a purely American phenomenon um, before uh, before it became globalized. Anyway, so that was my kind of kind of dumb moment where I caught myself thinking something which obviously should have been obvious to me, but um, maybe it's just telling of of where we are now. It is. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. the U.S. exported their yeah. identity politics and you know take the example of um blm let's say let's say i mean this is <laughs> this is a very why do you good... have to do this every episode you like you literally well, do this every well, single episode 
I'm just saying that you probably should have known about this, given that you, given that oh, you've written I, yes, about Yes, I know, it. but that, that was the point that I already made. You're just making my point well, back was, to me. I was, I'm, a, I'm agreeing with you. I didn't see what the problem with that is. But anyhow, the, I mean, I, th- I think I'm, I'm worried that I was a bit too critical or sounded so in my sort of initial, what I said initially, because I think the, the kind of fundamental idea to try or to try to trace this kind of, interrelation of intersectionality and and particularly like the the u.s capitals need for certain sorts of justifications at the start point of of neoliberalism i think that is that is a um quite a quite a convincing account in many ways i think the the bits about who's in which group i my i don't have a very good memory to recall who i'm supposed to like or dislike on the basis of which associations of guilt or, or otherwise um but i think the the conceptual analysis and the class analysis is is kind of more convincing to me than some of the historical this person was went went then from this group to that group to the other you see i would dis uh, i am more sympathetic to the tracing of those kind of historical connections in a way more than i am to some of his more substantive claims why about- just so you so you can add people to a to a list that you've got and and keep, I've got a, keep I've names. got a little list. I've got a little list. <laughs> Absolutely. If you're not keeping a list, then what are you doing? What are you here for? Anyway, um, no, it's more that I think he's on he's on uh, more solid ground when he's talking about those connections more than he is with some of the more substantive claims he makes about the interests that are served by some of these ideas. Um, but I wanted to, I suppose, just to add, I think we could, you know, push beyond uh, McNair's claims because I think the what the you know the revelation in a way of this piece is just how important those debates that were internal to American communism were, yeah. um, because they were such an important part, obscured retrospectively, but such an important part of structuring the New Deal state, which is you know subsequently exported through the reorganization of the world under the American Empire, or at least the Western half of it. So. You know the story of the western the story of the western left um in the post-war period so many of what will happen with the, so much of what will happen with the western left is decided in some of the moves that american communists make in some of the deals that they make so, um with the new deal state with the rooseveltian democrats and i think this brings so, it kind of front and center and it's really important i think for for western leftists in particular to have to accept um that we are you know in a very profound sense um, all of the debates on the left are internal to the debates of the American left. So, um, so I guess what one question here is like, it, so it, it, do you think he's saying that anybody who uses intersectionality is a Stalinist or do you think he's using it more um, m- uh, metaphorically to basically say that they're authoritarian and they're, you know, they look to close be- down debate and, and censor it? Because that was, you know, that's just something which, as you were saying that I was like, I kind of assumed that he he wouldn't actually say that they are Stalinist, but maybe that continuity is so strong that maybe that's literally what he's saying. It's something to turn over to our listeners, I guess. Um, Let us know what you think. Um, You know, do you think that he's saying that the continuity is so strong that they are de facto Stalinists or that it's metaphorical that they... um, 
so, so I mean, coward, actually, just cowardly, that. that's a cowardly populist. This is what I got accused of being a cowardly populist for saying, put it to the people. But you've just said that we should do exactly I that. Didn't say, well, on this issue, I, I, I actually, said, I, let's consult the people. There's I have, I have, I, I bring the voice of the people with me and let me share it with you. And <laughs> that is the we, most no, which Stalinist was, thing you could say. Yeah, I, I know. Absolutely. But so when we shared that we were going to do this, um, this piece, a couple of people, I don't remember if it was on Twitter, where responded kind of going like sneeringly, like, oh yeah, like you're just calling them Stalinists, like that's not, that doesn't have any basis to it, right? Like trying to trace a genealogy from contemporary identity politics da- back down to 1930 Stalinism, like that's just, um, uh, I don't know how to put it, like opportunistic or, um, you know, or, or kind of uh, sloppy kind of reasoning that just, and, and like sloppy polemics, basically. Yeah, right? motivated the, the, the reasoning. Idea, and, and it's interesting because this is often actually, but as it happens, a kind of the way that the right will respond to certain, you know, historical leftist arguments, you know, kind of tracing through histories, which is always important. Going, ah, what does that old stuff have to do with what's actually happening now? But what's interesting is that in this case, the, I, I think also a lot of people who might be opposed to identity politics, but reject any suggestion that there's a link between, um, you know, 1930 Stalinism, contemporary identity politics would be to say that, you know, contemporary identity politics is just this kind of like, bourgeois form of imposing conformity um, and of justifying meritocracy. And what the hell does that have to do with the popular front? Right. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it's worth then the question that that kind of imposes on us is to think, okay, what is the function? What is the political function of, um, of, of this, you know, in, in both different episodes, right? So what was the political yeah. function of what McNair describes as the popular front having of doing, of basically getting together these different groups and trying to um, discipline them or to, um, you know, kind of uh, wedge yeah. together unity so we'll, under the yeah, party? So let's, I mean, yeah, so let's talk, we'll talk about that, I suppose, in a moment. Um, I suppose what I would, I guess I would say is... Um, uh, I think, I mean, it's important to have some kind of historical memory as well. So there's no, anyone who is, you know, dealt with some of these people knows that the, you know, it's, and has, uh, you know, has some kind of historical um, awareness of the 20th century. It's very hard to avoid the parallels, um, the, in, the dogmatic kind of style of thought, the instinctive hostility to broaching certain kinds of um, limits um, on debate. And, and it's the one point where, where conservatives are totally right by saying, you know, these leftists, of course, they associate the left as a whole with just identity politics, um, which I guess in today's times you you could be forgiven for doing, saying, you know, these people are all Stalinists or they're Maoists, but reaching for whatever yeah. badly understood metaphor they have, except that here they happen yes. to indeed be right. Yeah, so they would, I mean, you know, they reach for it as a kind of, as uh, simply as an insult. And I think this is why the McNair piece is important, is because it shows it's not an insult, but it is something specific yeah. about this kind of politics. And I think, which is much better than simply kind of sneering um, or dismissing something on the basis that you don't like this kind of politics, but understanding the earlier gen- the failures of an earlier generation, the compromises um, and defeats that they were involved in, and how this locked in a particular kind of politics that we're still dealing with today. Um, the long, you know, I mean, and genuine, you know, genuinely so. It's still the long hand of uh, Uncle Joe reaching far beyond the grave. Um, so, okay, the, uh, the, orig- the original Uncle Joe, not not Uncle Joe two That's Joey B. Joey B. Yeah, based based Joey B. Thanks, thanks, George. Rather than base, Joey S. 
Um, so the next, he's um, not. He wasn't based. Can I carry? He on? was. Un, he was unbased. Uh, yeah, sure, sure. You please do. So um, I wanted to talk about the core point, I guess, of um, the core claim, and uh, McNair's claim is that it's the that this particular idea of suppressing dissent on the left. Um, in the interests of uh, of greater unity, that it can be it specifically can be rooted in a speech made by um, the leader of the Communist International at the time, which was the international um, organization of global communist parties, in their so-called United Front policy in the 1930s, and um, that in this in this uh, claim there was or in the kind of policy that was chosen of the United Front, it was a way in which they limited and restrained um, uh, communist aspirations as part of constructing an alliance with um, with uh, the bourgeoisie in order to oppose fascism and so this was the this was the this is where he roots the attempt to or the decision of um, the communist movement at the time to suppress dissent and what's so important about this and this is done well i think in the piece is that it liquidates the the idea of uh, eliminating the notion of political leadership by a political party it means essentially that there is no role for political representation and there's no role for political synthesis of all the different competing claims of the different oppressed groups that the party claimed to represent. And so given that they abandoned this notion of leadership and that there would be no, um, there would be no uh, criticism offered of or alternative offered of the existing Rooseveltian Democrats and what was an offer in terms of the New Deal, it meant that all you had were these different um, oppressed groups. And it's out of this kind of um, stasis, effectively, and the elimination of the idea of political leadership and the role of the political party, so overturning the kind of the classical Leninist idea of political leadership, that you end up effectively with what will become eventually kind of an ethnic and communitarian model of politics. And eventually, later on in the 1980s and later, it becomes the model of the Rainbow Coalition where you have all these different communitarian identity groups with official representatives, whether they're gays or women or blacks or black churches or whatever, everyone has their kind of leading official representatives and they all sit around the table and you construct this coalition, but there's yeah. no possibility for synthesizing it. So my sort of, or the, the, the bit that maybe I just didn't really get from the, from the paper was, okay, you can see the people's front policy and all these kind of like, you suppress dissent in the interest of unity because you have an enemy and it's really important to do that. But, and, and in the thirties, you've got the good old fascists who, who, who are that enemy, but in the sixties and seventies, and then through the sort of late eighties and late seventies and eighties is like these, these periods um, where this gets modified by soft Maoism and then so on and so forth. Like it, who is the enemy? Like you can see the bind, the binding together of these coalitions, but I don't, it didn't but, really but, but the work unity, to me that you don't have you have you have you don't have a unity against an enemy. But yeah, I, but it I mean, was never that. I mean, the, the unity question was always about you might always have sort of dissent within any sort of movement, and so it's about suppressing disagreements and having everyone toe the line. And so it's not just about fascists. I mean, also worth bearing in mind that this was about the CPUSA, not about uh, the communists in in Europe. So um, well. 
Though I, well, to uh, qualify that though, so there's, um, I think, I mean, the, the point was, it was that all the communist party's policies at the national level were dictated by the geopolitical interests of Moscow at the time. And so with the emphasis on fighting fascism, and this is something which is left out of Mike McNair's piece, but after the, after, um, Hitler's, um, appointment as chancellor in 1933. And so the tremendous blow that Stalin's policy up to that point, um, what is, had been his policy up to that point. It was a tremendous setback, obviously, for um, for Stalin and for Stalinism. And so they pivot to the alliances with, um, with the Western Democrats. And in so doing, uh, this is why they suppress dissent and they suppress, you know, they don't want to uh, jeopardize the, they don't want to jeopardize essentially the international um, position of the Soviet Union by risking um, national communist parties criticizing governments, um, Western capitalist states. And so this is the imperative of suppressing dissent. Yeah, but it's about it's, internal political dissent. It's not about main, maintaining unity in the face of an obvious enemy in a, in a well, kind of but war situation. Unity on the left. The idea yes. is maintaining yeah. unity on the left. Um, but I suppose the point, what I would, uh, this, the re I mean, this was a roundabout way of answering George, because, so you're right, I think he doesn't, the weakness of the article is, is that he doesn't actually draw those connections very well. But what I thought was interesting is, that the the identity politics of the new left is rooted in the 1930s and this is what comes across so that the the failure of the new left was already built into the compromises of the earlier new deal era and the decisions made by the cpusu at the time and that the new left weren't able to escape from them so it's not that the you know that identity politics and the new social movement started in the 60s with the new left but that the base was already laid for that in the kind of communitarian model of different oppressed groups and, which was which came out of um the seventh congress according to mcnair anyway of the seventh uh, congress of the communist international and, and there's an interesting point i mean I, as far as i see it the, the his section on describing what you know the the popular front roots of intersectionality was that the point already about unity and suppressing disagreements Another one, which is important, which is the, the treatment of official leaders as legitimate representatives, which is, of course, something yeah. that we see in our, today's times, but also yeah. um, emerged, you know, through the through the new left as well. Um, we feel already you've already mentioned the, the question of economism, of tweet of treating workers interests as to be only defended by labor unions and labor unions in a form which are which is which aren't political at, in, in any way. Right. It's just in, yeah. in defending their immediate material interests. And then the other and then the, the last point, which is interesting, is that. The emphasis, and which kind of is in a way of synthesizing these different points, is that party unity, right, the defense of party unity meant treating labor as the privileged group amongst this coalition of interests. Um, and because it did that, it led women, uh, women's move, you know, women's movements and black movements as well yes. to search elsewhere for yes, exactly. political representation yes. because they yes. weren't treating the yes. uh, racism question and the women's question seriously, which I think is a yes. fair criticism of the 1930s yeah. left. Yeah. Um, so you have so this, that, yes. so you have this sort of movement where initially it's the women and black women being pushed out of effectively of, um, you know, the kind of official communist left. And then later on in the 1960s and 70s, a sort of different movement where they're actually leading that movement away from, 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 from the left, right, in, in the way that they become yeah. skeptical of socialism. Yes. So that and that, um, and I'd say, so, and again, like here's where I'd want to push McNair further than he goes in the piece himself, because he says the, you know, he sees it as an abandonment of the role of the political party 
when they construct this united front policy, um, which is to say that there won't be any internal dissent and there won't be any criticism of um, capitalist politicians as part of constructing that deal. But it goes beyond, I think, just abandoning, retreating from the role of um, a party. I think it's the dissolution, in fact, of the very idea of political representation. I mean, that's what's at stake oh. in that um, speech. And that's where you end up with all these fragmented groups, essentially. And the stage is set for, um, you know, for the kind of pork barrel New Deal politics that becomes well, the modus operandi of the American state. Because you only get sectional representation thereafter, whether yes. it be different sections of workers in different industries or different groups, women, black, etc. Right. Yeah, it becomes um, corporatist. Different groups need to be kind of need to make sure they get a seat at the table to get kind of the carve up of, uh, you know, the taxes redistribution of the American welfare state, what have you. Um, so is there anything else that we want to talk about the core argument um, with respect to where he how where and how he roots the origins of intersectionalism in well, the Dimitrov era of the Communist International? No, I think I think I, I think there's some cool things history. to pull out about the Wait, new George, left history. George, George, George first, then then Alex. I was going to say no, we we don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> we should move on from the history to the to the um, analysis of of what in, which comes later in the paper of what intersectionality is and where it where it that term comes from and whose interests it represents. But I think Alex, I, I think uh, there's Alex some important to, uh, yeah, I think there's some important points about the late about the second phase that he describes, which is the the kind of soft Maoism of the new left, right? Um, and he obviously talks about consciousness raising, which Phil already talked about when he was introducing the piece. But there's also the point of, about the kind of misunderstanding of labor aristocracy theory, which I thought was really interesting, because there there's an element which you can have has a very direct lineage between between then and today, which is this idea of privileged workers in um, in the West, right? That um, that this was the labor aristocracy. Now, the way that that ends up becoming, uh, well, ends up being traduced and exaggerated leads to a situation where you basically have this equation where you have privileged workers are those who are not radical enough because they've been bought off by, by the gains of imperialism. I'm not uh, endorsing that theory, but that's how that's how that theory goes. Um, and that in doing, in doing so, and in saying that there's this like uh, privileged um, layer of workers, you create this idea that that can then be extended to any section of the people or the masses or the working class. So I think it's quite interesting because it creates this idea of a privilege within the people. So it's not that the uh, that privilege is wielded against the people, against the masses, or against the working class, depending on your conception, but that you can that there are privileged layers within the people, um, and that this then gets extended through in, in kind of contemporary identity politics across society, which which is what makes it so precisely divisive. Is that there's these elements of privilege all through the, the, the social order um, amongst people who are otherwise obviously not privileged amongst the working class. So, you know, you have white people who are privileged, you have, um, you know, you have straight, you have uh, straight black people who are more privileged than um, gay black people within the black movement, you have, etc. So you have all, you know, it becomes extremely divisive and ends up becoming this sort of um, negative solidarity and race towards the bottom of, of being the le least possible privilege in any sort of section of society that, that you want to be in. And I, I just thought that was quite interesting, because I think there, I, I can totally buy the genealogy between uh, the between labor aristocracy all the way to contemporary privilege theory. Yeah, I agree with that.
we should move on. So um, I think it's worth getting into the more contemporary applications of it. And this is where I think the disagreement becomes clearer. So um, this isn't so explicit in the McNair. And I think he, he becomes, he's a less sure-footed when it comes to thinking through the contemporary politics of intersectionalism. But the the origin of this United Front policy or um, the kind of the, the Stalinism of the 1930s was about protecting an alliance between is essentially the alliance between uh, communists and the groups they represented and the Rooseveltian Democrats in the case of the US. And that was dictated by the foreign policy interests of the Stalinist bureaucracy in Moscow. So it was protecting that Soviet-US alliance effectively that would uh, win the Second World War. That was what its political purpose was. Where it's not clear to me, um, he doesn't, but, you know, and that's, say, that's fair enough, I think. I mean, that, you know, that's, I think, accurate. Today, though, he, he thinks the intersectionalism's primary purpose is to be used against the left. And so he trots out the usual kind of complaints about how it was used to sabotage Corbynism, um, used to sabotage the Sanders campaign. And while that's true, um, you know, the kind of the um, the highly kind of opportunistic um, smears that were particularly against Sanders about racism and sexism that were very clearly kind of motivated by just um, uh, media kind of uh, hatchet jobs trying to delegitimize the campaign. Um, but nonetheless, it seems to me it's much larger than simply a weapon that's used against the left. It's a way of controlling the population at large. And I would have thought that would be, um, you know, very apparent. That's the way intersectionalism works, not least because it meshes so well with the human resources ideology that so many ordinary people will confront in the way in which they interface with their employers. Yeah, I mean, I think this, I think there were some really, really good points in this in this part of the the paper. This idea that um, intersectionality was originally essentially a term for radical lawyers you know it was elitists pro judges they were the saviors um from on high you know that's a classically anti-democratic way of achieving social change that that as you said controls the population at large demobilizes working class people at the at the same time as as trying to um <clears throat> trying to change things in a in a particular direction and i think the the, the disagreement that i would have with the analysis would be you know i think look along the same lines as yours Phil that the it's not accidental like it's not that intersectionality sabotaged the Corbyn and Sanders projects it's that it's a contradiction of that class position that the people who supported those projects and who are the sort of that that radical lawyer class um or PMC or petty bourgeoisie or or whatever you want to call them um that that's that they're defending their own narrow interests and they can try to do it on the basis of or pretending to be on the basis of a, a wider section of the population or working class but ultimately those contradictions are going to, are going to come through as they as they did um with with Corbyn and Sanders kind of eventually getting um, getting sunk I mean I think it's right that they were obviously already very prone to to that to that sort of argument right um and then that, that the accusations that you know, you you throw those accusations of sexism and racism at the left, and they will fold because they that's something they, they didn't have any kind of defense. They didn't have the kind of intellectual armament to defend themselves against. As to it being kind of the narrow interest of that section 
of a class, as George said, or a class as a whole. Um, I don't think it's a narrow interest. I mean, I don't think it's the narrow interest of those people to defend intersectionality, but it's ideological. I mean, they're ideologically wedded to it be- precisely because it, it it fits with their class perspective. But I don't think it's necessarily their narrow interests, but it might be, of course, mobilized in the narrow interests of those who want to leverage themselves into position as, for example, a spokespeople of uh, X oppressed group. But I think there's, I think they're different things. Are you saying I'm being too crude? I'm being okay, too basically, class reductionist. Basically, yeah. Okay, wait. So no, no, not, not class. Re- no, precisely so, not class reductionist. You're being you vulgar materialist reductionist. Okay, let, let's let's be more concrete then. So the origin of um, uh, the United Front policy, um, proto-intersectionalism, if you want to call that, is about protecting the alliance between um, trade union leaders, bureaucrats, and um, the Soviet and the in- the needs and interests of Soviet foreign policy in the 1930s. So whose political interests are served? by intersectionalism today so george has made and it doesn't seem to me that we have a clear answer because george seems to be suggesting nobody's interests are served that sanders and corbyn are kind of a collateral damage of of the pmc's commitment to um uh, to intersectionalism um whereas alex you're suggesting that intersectionalism is actually uh, a kind of an ideology of rule effective ideology of rule you've managed completely to misrepresent what i said um, Alex was actually closer to, onto the mark, calling well, me a then, vulgar materialist. Well, then, because come out, then come uh, out. That's exactly points. what I'm doing. Um, if you had listened the first time, maybe I wouldn't need this repetition, or perhaps I didn't explain myself very clearly. That's I'm also sure it was that actually definitely possible. But that I think that the people that it, it does it's not that nobody's interests are served. It's that the people that like there is a, a small group of people in society who who benefit materially. From identity politics, from intersectionality. But that doesn't I mean, explain why they to purchase them. Exactly. Yeah, because that that explains why a, a narrow section of the middle class leaderships of certain, you know, like it, it, it's a, it's again, as you say, it's a section of a section um, of a class. So it would be like, like I mean, explaining the New Deal where... by reference to a thin layer of trade union bureaucrats, right? Well, this, work. this is the these are the they've. I, I guess this is a. a, a a class project that has had some success um, in attracting wider layers of society to it. I mean, maybe that's where the Stalinist rapper comes in, that a relatively small group of people um, have had their class, were able to have their class interests served by, um, through a project which has a much wider applicability and is able to perform a much wider censorship than than just the, the narrow institutions within which those people um, operate. I mean, so yeah, this I is mean, the problem I think with McNair because so you know he understands the purpose of the United Front is suppressing the left effectively on the left. It was how the Stalinists suppressed the radical left, um, and so he kind of picks it up and applies it today. So this is how you know the radical left, i.e., Corbynism and Sanders Sandersism, are being suppressed today, and that seems to me far too uh, far you know far too simplistic an account of what's happening. Because it seems to me that intersectionalism, it's the gift, it's the kind of the historic gift of um, of radicals to capitalism, because it seems to me to fit 
um, to serve uh, the contemporary needs of capitalist organization very effectively. As I mentioned, it's the human resources ideology, which is uh, James Hartfield's argument in his book, The Equalities Revolution, as we discussed some episodes back. It's also um, the perfect justification to uh, diffuse democratic majoritarianism. Well, then um, you're well, then you're agreeing with me that there's a small there's a small group of people who push this forward, and it fits very well with the wider with the wider demands of uh, HR, new spirit of capitalism, and that's a and that's a very good fit, and that goes a long way to explaining why this pseudo radical um, ideology is able to like is able to be accepted by HR departments at the same time as as kind of managing dissent and and demobilizing you know into a very individualized logic i mean if you're talking about i mean i don't know if it's demobilizing incidentally i think it is mobilizing but obviously in 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 a in a, in a very certain groups in, yeah. in particular ways in yeah, yeah. democratic in majorities yeah. maybe that's a better way to put it is that it's it demobilizes at the aggregate level and mobilizes in a very individualized way. Because if you're talking about racism and sexism, who's the enemy there? The individual racist, the individual sexist, like the white, the white working class dude, um, probably, um, or just you know, but it, it reduces everything to questions of discrimination, which you can have structural discrimination, of course, but there is an individualizing logic there. It's like these people act in this way that they're the bad people. It's not the the system or whatever. So, so McNair doesn't do this, and I guess it's incumbent on us to try. So how does this ideology, which begins in the emergence of the corporate state, ministering to all these different groups um, and kind of uh, dividing up the dividing up the masses into various communitarian identity groups that become the kind of foundation of the post-war American state. So how does it transition from the corporatist model to the neoliberal model? Well, when you said kind of communitarian identity groups, I don't know if that's it. Like, because this might be me being really well, crude. So but just, like, well, no, so, so I'm thinking, so, but I'm thinking like, you know, Italian workers, Irish workers, black workers, then it becomes women, then it becomes gays, then it becomes blacks as an identity mm. group. You know, this is the evolution of uh, the evolution of the post-war American state. Yeah, but I think that idea of communitarianism, that that's that makes me think of kind of, you know, everybody holding hands and like everybody getting along but actually the sort of identity groups are opposed there's not a solidarity assumed there in fact that the whole disconstruction of the identities are that they're they're materially opposed i wasn't using communitarianism in a positive sense that's you projecting your own views onto it i'm using communitarianism in the sordid kind of narrow sense of those various little groups but anyway back to our question and the point is that how does it go Well, how does it go, right? So how does it flip from its corporatist origins to serve so well in the era of high neoliberalism? I mean, that's yeah, a good question. That's it. Because those identities move from being corporatist to being conflictual somehow, maybe. But it's a good question. No, I don't I mean, think that's, I don't I think that's an answer. But I mean, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> actually not, struggling. That's not an answer. Um, I'm, I also, it, also <laughs> it's, it's more like you're, an you're repeating the question. Um, no, the, it's the end of the answer. You just need all the bits that get to that conclusion. And then you've well, got a full I, answer. I think may, maybe part of the answer is to be found in the breakdown of 
collective organizations because that yeah. corporatism was rooted in and structured through um, different different groups. So, you know, a trade union dominated by Italian workers, to take the example for the Phil was talking about, um, black nationalist groups, which were organized, um, the women's movement, which is also probably organized, you know, and they were talking about actual groups on the left and, and they were genuinely the left. They had probably abandoned, as McNair accuses them of having done, of having abandoned universal emancipation in favor of coalitions of sections, but they were nevertheless the left and they were nevertheless grassroots um, and they were organized. And then I think into the neoliberal era, that becomes, um, that sort of thing kind of falls apart and disappears, right? Because yeah. those those organizations and groups become much more um well, I don't know. Broken down, yeah. right? They they become no, exactly. they become much this more individualized is... and much more something that happens on social media. Exactly, I think that's the whole point that the, the same identity in a different context, you know, as the void that we always talk about becomes more and more apparent as society gets unglued, as people really, you know, are experiencing things on a more individualized in a more individualized way, then these identities. The context has changed and they are then more yeah. individualized and more but there's something this else is, this is the weakness of the mcnair as well as because he said you know he sees it as a tool of the right against the left um missing the fact if it's d you know it's deeply anti-traditionalist and so in that sense there you know it doesn't have a traditional it's just it doesn't it's not about reviving uh restoring any kind of uh, conservative political project it's deeply anti-traditionalist it's very much about it's you know all, i mean it's, yeah, it's a tool of the left against class politics yeah exactly and so and he isn't able i think this is what i'm trying to get at he isn't able to understand the way it operates in a, in a new context he sees it as a repetition of an earlier you know the way in which the radical left is kind of uh defanged when in fact it seems to be operating in a very diff new and different way. So yeah, the and, the, and the radical left is already withered. So it's not as if and, and has already in, in many regards internalized but it has, this. But so. the point, yeah, well, but intersectionalism has some of those elements of the radical left, but in the service of um, of capitalism, right? In the sense of you know that it's it's opposition to the family, for instance, it's opposition to traditional ideas of community, it's um, support for the range of different identity groups, you know, all these new kind of marketing segments that can be um, organized around you, you know, by the human resource bureaucrats. So, so, so I, I mean, think, you know, I that think seems to be. The I think you're being. I think you're being a bit unfair because I think the the some elements of this analysis that we've been discussing this evening have become way clearer in the last few years i mean if there was any doubt when this 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 came out in 2018 it's probably written in like 2017 like i think every every month that part that's passed since then like in the british context at least in you know post brexit world whatever like this has become clearer so it's a bit like you know, he doesn't pick up all of this stuff, but I think there are some, some, some in really insightful points. Which, if you extend that logic, that kind of individualizing logic, you can you can draw out some of the, I think the things that would already, happen. Though. The anti, yeah, the de, you know, was, the detraditionalist aspect of it, which means that it can't be um, it can't be so easily dismissed and contained as a project of the right. I think I don't think it's because of how much has happened in the last few years. I think it's the limits of his analysis his unwillingness to see just how difficult uh, the situation for the left is i'm it's not sure not i understood simply... your, your your point about the anti-traditionalism i mean how in in what sense 
Well, in the sense that it is, you know, there is some, there is a genuinely radical leftist edge um, deprived of the content of universal emancipation and deprived of the kind of revolutionary idealism of an earlier kind of period. But it's, it's not, it's not simply um, the right, you know, kind of um, reconstituting traditional identities against the radical left threat. It's the proliferation of new identities. It's breaking down traditional yeah. communities. It's modernization. It's overthrowing the old. Um, it's very you yeah, know, and, so and it it's has, like and it's flexibility and, yeah, and possibility in some ways. Yeah, and, yeah. all of that, um, and that he misses. And it's and it's another weakness I think of the piece is how how um, sneering he is of the um, ways in which. Um, you know the ways in which uh, libertarians, as he you know as he terms it, and um, the uh, libertarian right picked up on the and exploited some of the um, the racism of the old welfare states and um, social democracy, and he sees this you know kind of as purely kind of uh, you know that it was purely instrumental, when it seems to me like uh, you know it runs a bit deeper than that. Those the old welfare states. Um, and their uh, race, you know, and their racist kind of uh, bureaucratic structures—they were genuinely oppressive, and it wasn't simply, you know, kind of um, uh, libertarian posturing that the critique of the racism and the kind of chauvinism and the ex the exclusive character of some of those structures was also genuine. So when he kind of says, "Oh, yeah, you know, they um, the right kind of uh, instrumentally picked up some of the criticisms of the old uh, old social democracy as neoliberalism emerged." I think he underplays the appeal of those criticisms, that there was a genuine critique to be made of the ways in which um, those old collectivist state-led corporatist structures were genuinely oppressive. I, I think that's right, though he does recognize that the focus on labor, and especially labor in an economistic sense, excluded Black people and and women, right, and that those and that their claims for liberation were and political claims for liberation were were kind of marginalized in the 1930s. So I think that's that's one thing I, I would propose. Maybe I, I'm just trying to sum this up: is is that there's maybe three phases here that we're talking about, and that the first is the kind of prehistory of of the Popular Front and Stalinism. The second one is the when identity politics really comes into its own, but it exists as a form of left generation not as something that the right uses for such and such purposes or that is a form of uh, rule or whatever, right? It's just a form of the left becoming increasingly degenerated by maybe around basically the 2000s, I think, then it, it shifts into becoming something else that becomes a tool of HR departments. It becomes something that um, that is explicitly wedded to equality of opportunity as a form of meritocracy. And, and here McNair is absolutely right in saying that it's a way of victim blaming, actually, which is a great kind of little ironic point that uh, equality of opportunity is a form of victim blaming because it says the only permissible reason not to achieve in life, to, 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 to make money and succeed is because you've been victim, you've been subject to racial or gender discrimination. So anyone else who fails, uh, you failed because you deserve to fail. And I think that was a great bit of, of, of uh, well, I think yeah. he just nails, nails the, the nail on the head with that point. Um, yeah. But I think, George, I mean, do, do we agree that there's these kind of, I think it's worth in discussing this breaking up in these, these two phases, at least, you know, 
when it's form of when it's a form of left yeah, generation, uh, and then when it becomes a form of uh, he doesn't of class really rule. do that. I think, but yes, I mean, I think it would be. I mean, I guess what I'm, I guess the conclusion is that there are more parts of the story. So he's got like you know, I think he's laid some kind of um, a few solid foundations, but there's a lot more before you would have the full shape of of the building um, in terms of how you know where this how this ideology evolved from the 1930s over the course of the new left to um, it's uh, kind of uh, raining how it rains today as we say do, kind of in the HR departments and so do on. You, do you think he at least allows us to say to say what sort of um, building it is whether it's a bungalow or a multi-story kind of house or a, an office building it's or a bunga a, bungalow there you go did I didn't. You, so we, that was we didn't, George, we didn't rehearse that. That was your um, point. No, no, that wasn't my point. <laughs> oh, okay. My point. That was just a little. I actually have two points um, to make. Uh, just and I think the the kind of the conclusion that he draws, which is like Trump was um, the natural kind of this was white male identity politics. So it's like the conclusion, like you get what you deserve if you do this kind of intersectionality type thing I, I i don't think that's right i think that that it made yeah, me think of the the episode we did with jennifer silver quite a while ago on her book we're still here which is which is you know i think i'll go back and reread it after this because it's like that's just completely misses the political explanation of why of why trump was elected it's kind of a like it's kind of blaming the people who voted for trump in that classic like you know, oh, you're just doing this because well, actually it's understandable because everyone's been talking about identity and you, I voted for identity reasons. It's like, <laughs> no, actually there were economic, there were political reasons that, that yeah. I think this, well, what, this, what were they, this conclusion, what were they? Well, we've talked about Michael Lind and we've talked about disempowerment. And I think that's, that's the way to look at it. I don't no, see it. But, no, but, but, but say, say what it yeah. is, because I'm, because it's worth being clear about what, what that is. Cause I, I kind of agree with this point though. I don't agree with it in oh, terms no. of specifically Trump and Clinton. I agree with it. You hate in, the in Trump general voters. Sense. You hate it. I don't think. I, I don't hate think everyone, I George. I don't hate the Trump voters. I hate everyone. <laughs> don't, don't tar me with that brush. Okay. Um, but if you hate everyone, then you hate the, the Trump voters as well. Um, there you go. Logic, Which is okay. Boom. It's okay to hate George. I think that's important. Um, no. So the, the, so, well, the, the argument that Jennifer Silver gives in that book, in that book is like the, 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 the alternative was, you know, president dickhead or president sellout and people saw through the Clinton project like easily. And that I think is is something. Okay, I think which that is, I think that's I think that's fair. I don't think it's right to resume the Trump vote in it's just white male identity politics. That would be wrong. Yeah, right? but I do but, I do think I, George I, is I think, right that McNair kind of slides into that. I think that's fair. I think that I think that's fair. I think though there is there is if we treat that as as a metonym, right? Vote Clinton, get Trump. Precisely meaning specifically, if you are in favor of rainbow coalition intersectionalism, then that will generate white and or male identity politics naturally and that's not saying people are stupid or or d dupes or whatever but it's very specifically like if no one is speaking for you then you are going to have to find a way yeah. to be listened to and the only language that you yeah, have to do that no... is through your sectionalist defense whether as a white person yeah. as a male mm -hmm. or as you know old working yeah, class there is no, you know it's I... only to re it's to recapitulate the point there is no universal vision of emancipation Exactly. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure I even buy that 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 it's that is that strong. I mean, there's there is presumably some sort of reaction to it, but I don't think, I don't think this way of looking at the world is 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 completely hegemonic. But actually, I mean, my my second my second point, 
Um, do you think that we could describe Mike McNair as a smart fellow? Do, do you think this is possible? Because like he, he is. And... I feel you're, you're grinning like a um, chimp. What are you trying to get means... at? It means there's something else like because behind the question. If you'd actually, if you'd actually just, so he's literally an smart fellow and tutor in law. So that's like, he's lit, like his professional title is a smart fellow. Um, so there you go. I just right. thought that was. I apologize to our listeners about the, <sighs> the internal Oxford chat. It's not internal Oxford podcast. chat. It's like, this guy's a smart fellow. So you've got to listen to what I anyway. guess you get a glimpse into uh, collegiate kind of uh, the, the mis- mysteries of. This uh, banter, fucking- mate banter in the yeah, in the scr hogwarts yeah. and fucking yeah exactly scr scr banter anyway um so uh hopefully i don't i mean unless I, either I have, of you I, I, yeah I, I do i do have a, i do have a point which is which you hinted at at the beginning which i think is important and i think where he is wrong or at least he's he he anyway i'll, I'll say what i want to say which is he makes a point at the top and at the very end that intersectionality is self-defeating on its own terms precisely by what i was just saying because of the you know vote yeah. clinton get trump kind of idea right that uh multicolored yeah. identity politics brings forth white male identity politics but what i think is important is that is true that it's self-defeating if we treat the wielders of identity politics as as the left and as you know grassroots and whatever right if we understand identity politics for what it really is today which is hr departments pmc um divide and rule forms of ideology you know all the way up to the very tops of of major corporations then it is not self-defeating in fact it's successful intersectionality is successful and successful because it's self-perpetuating and here precisely on the grounds that mcnair says it that if if uh, identity, you know, kind of left-wing identity politics brings forth uh, white male identity politics, then perfect, ideal, yes, because yes. it means that it has something to rail against, and it becomes yes. completely self-perpetuating. Yes. And he misses yes. that point. Yes, and that's I think the, that's what I was I guess stumbling towards when I said about how he misunderstands it as a tool just to suppress Corbynism and Sanders. In fact, it's functioning far on a far wider scope uh, than that. And you're right, it's. Uh, it's actually successful. He sees it as a failed project of the left when in fact it's uh, it's functioning as intended. Yeah, I mean, that's important to, to underscore that. And it's, Alex put it in a much more eloquent way than, than I tried to earlier, that it's a coherent class project. Like, yeah. it's not like... It, it's, in, become, it's, it's become one. It's become one. Yeah. I think that's the important thing. Well, hmm. hmm. It, it wasn't born that. And I think this is where some people who criticize identity politics from a kind of populist or kind of whatever background or miss out a, a point that it's like that as if identity politics was always a class project from um, it, from the bourgeoisie. Well, and I think that does it, does it, it matter does it it, if it is now, does it does it matter either way? If it wasn't and it got co-opted, then it showed that it could be co-opted no, because it's if it started as a coherent class project. And it, it still is. It's then important it was to, to understand. It's important to understand uh, how things develop. I think historically, and how otherwise, and indeed how things change. Um, but I think it always. I, was. I, I mean, I think I think the say, workers, the workers have no nation, which is why you've got to create identities for them. No, sure, sure, sure. I, I agree, but I mean, in terms of who are the actual empirical agents doing it, right? That it's not like this was cooked up by, you know kind of bourgeois interests and kind of fed to the working class, right? I mean, he identifies how this was um, the popular front of CPUSA politicians, and then it was Combahee River Collective and stuff like that, creating, you know, 
cooking up these ideas, which just so happened then later on to actually be quite useful um, with a, with some minor modifications here and there, uh, very useful for, yeah, for the ruling class. I mean, but they're, yeah, but I mean, you know, the it's the CPUSA that's cutting the deals with the New Deal bureaucrats, you know, but, that are the... But, I mean, but all, it's, all of it is basically just state. looking for who to blame, but like the com- the, blame CP. The black USA, radical, blame, the black radical feminists yeah, of the 1970s are the. They're the predecessors of the leaders of the NGOs today. No. no, but it's not about looking who to blame. I mean, it is important, I think, to understand how the how the origins of our problems yes. uh, develop in one context and change over time to to new contexts. And whose names to add to your list? No, no, no. It's not saying. that. No, no. And the, the reason why the history and the genealogy is important is not just also out of intellectual interest or for making a list, but to convey the understanding that the left is important in shaping the contemporary world because there's yes. this there's this yes. thing that leftists do and go ah the right's done all this stuff and even if you're against identity politics it's like the right made identity politics and they're fucking us with it it's like no the left yes. actually contributed yes. in a large way yes. to creating our contemporary yes. culture yes. and this article spells that out yes exactly and that i think is in fact the the strongest um validation for reading it and um, again, something I was trying to articulate, not as well as Alex just did early, um, at the outset, is how to understand the role of the left, the failures of the left in producing the world that we're in at the moment. So, and I think that's the, no, the Mike the, McNair's greatest contribution and why Alex, history is important. Alex was saying it's the successes of the left, or maybe that's my... No, the successes no. of the ideology of intersectionalism the, in serving its purpose. The successes of the left. Like no, because it's obviously left, left failure, but it's different forms it's of left success, failure. It's self, left it's self the success undermining. of the Stalinists is what I, so the long arm of Uncle Joe, right? I mean, that's the point. The successes, if you want to call that the successes of the left, um, fine, you know, but it's not the entirety of the left. And I think it's fair to say uh, Stalinism is the failure and defeat of the left. Perhaps you disagree, yeah, George. No, I, I agree with Phil, Perhaps though. I, I, think do. That um, would also I, add the, I, I would also add the new left well, to that. You know that it's not just it's two. It's it's two versus one. That's that's fine. I mean, we can agree. <laughs> we can we can agree to disagree. Um, the agree to disagree about what? So Stalinism isn't the defeat of the left. No, the, Stalinism the, is the entirety of the left. That this isn't one part of the left. This is the whole of the left today. Today it is, yeah. And that's not then that's because of the success of the left and the defeat of Marxism. You can differentiate. What do you mean things. the success of the left and the defeat of Marxism? That doesn't make any sense. It does. It does. It does. They're not the same thing. No, they're, they're not the same. They're not, they're not the same thing. Opposed. But they once they once effectively no. were. No, no, they never were. They never were. Like even in the Communist Manifesto, Marx is railing against all these all these leftists. So no, I mean, sure, but this is sure, a whole. This is a whole nother. I think this, we'll have to pick this up at a different point. I'm sure um, our, our listeners can weigh in and, yeah. and turn it. So uh, not, yeah, not I'd two encourage one, but twenty against two. I'd, I'd encourage, I'd encourage yeah, our listeners army. to weigh in. I'd encourage yeah. listeners to weigh in for sure. Um, and in, on George's think, side, and indeed, I've um, indeed, I think the discussion has been, um, you know, has been productive and vindicated the choice. I think because it is a stimulating text for you know for all its faults. Um, and so, hats off to Mike McNair for um, for that and for trying to get the history right. Anyway, so. Um, over to you, Alex. Tell us about our next uh, lineup. Well, I, before I just want to tell people that after this, I'm going to go out and uh, kick the shit out of some blue-haired uh, person with a hammer and sickle earring. You know, that's the uh, you know the image of the of the intersectional Stalinist. So you're announcing violence on on. Uh, some on it can be cleansing. Right. It can have a 
a salutary effect. No, uh, so um, what's wrong with having blue hair? No, it's just a cliche of like, you know, you're jealous because you don't have any. That's why. exactly it's like, give me some of that blue hair. I'll take it. <laughs> I, I'd be really obnoxious if I had hair. I'd be doing all sorts of stupid shit with it. So it's, it's kind of better being bold. It keeps me, keeps me, keeps me normcore. Keeps you honest. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So yeah, we, the next reading club will be on uh, Gaspar Miklos Tamas's, uh, excuse, uh, excuse me for my Hungarian pronunciation, uh, his essay, Telling the Truth About Class. And that'll be out. Uh, we're doing that in a month. If you want to read that, send in your questions please do so. We would be delighted to have them. And uh, that's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.